Today, I have the pleasure to host a very special guest. He was head of hedge fund sales in equities and equity derivatives at Goldman Sachs Europe, from where he retired to start Global Macro Investor in 2005. He predicted the mortgage crisis from 2008 and 9, and five years later, in 2014, he co-founded with his good friends Damien, Grant and Remy, what we know today as the Real Vision Group. Here they launched Real Vision Crypto, a huge success, and recently things got even better with the launch of Real Vision Pro Crypto in partnership with Delphi Digital. Raul's Adventures in Crypto is a weekly show that is wildly popular on the platform, and rightly so because among recent guests we can find Ari Paul, Yatsiu, Jamie Burke or Dan Tapiero. The YouTube channel Real Vision Finance has over 600k subscribers and wherever he appears the number of views are ridiculous. 2 million at Tom Bilio just recently, while the episode Raul Paul's introduction to Exponential Age from Real Vision has 1.8 million as we speak. Hola Raul y bienvenido a the Stakeboard DAO Talks. Gracias. <laughs> now that I spoke all my all the Spanish words that I know after five years staying in Madrid, uh, <laughs> I can tell you that this is this is the most difficult and the easiest uh, interview I will have. It's the most difficult because you are one of my heroes, and I know this is uh, this this sentiment is among many many people from our community. And it's the easiest because I consume all your content. So preparing for, uh, for, for this discussion was damn easy. Before diving into crypto, let's start a little bit with your bread and butter, the big picture. And in March 2020, you had a discussion with Pump and you predicted the pandemic impact and you nailed it. I'm curious to know how you see 2022 from a macro perspective. 2022 is a more complex year, so I can't assign as high a probability to it. My perspective is, in a world riddled with debt and overwhelmed by debt, if you raise prices on people, they will consume less. So my view is the opposite of everybody else's view currently. My view is that growth slows dramatically based on both the central bank balance sheet tapering um, and the higher prices of input costs like electricity, um, those kind of things, and also gasoline for cars, those kind of things are fixed costs. And if you rise the fixed costs in people without raising wages as much, you end up with less demand. Or its potential is more, more borrowing. There's, that's the only way. You either consume less or borrow more. It doesn't look like the banking system really wants to lend um, in that way and household balance sheets already you know have a, an excessive amount of debt so i think the balance of probabilities is a slower year which is not what people expect a slower year would tend to see a reduction in the rate of inflation a reduction in bond yields um, and a probable return of expansion of the central bank balance sheets which is somewhat typical after almost every single recession the central banks tend to wait for the economy to truly stabilize and that process usually takes about two years of further rate cuts as the stimulus rolls off and then the economy comes down to a trend rate of growth, which is too low. They stimulate again. It drifts down. They stimulate again and eventually you find the equilibrium level of the trend rate of growth, which I think is much lower than people expect. Why, why do you think you are a contrarian from, 
from this perspective? Because most people see what's in front of their eyes and not what lies into the future. So you need to look at the kind of probabilistic trees of, okay, what could happen? There are no certainties. None of us know. But where did the probabilities align themselves? Most people look with inflation up now, therefore inflation. Therefore, wages will go up. And that that's the and therefore the Fed needs to tighten. That that's the general how the market tends to think. The macro game is all about living in the future and looking backwards at the probabilities to say what is the most likely outcome from here and is there opportunity to invest accordingly. So you think that the inflation rate of like almost seven percent that we've seen in in the US will go down? Correct. Either mathematically, it's likely to go down. If you and if you also just step back and say, well, what has happened to the price of oil? It's been coming off again. Copper hasn't gone up for some time. Lumber prices, well, they've come down. So what we're left with is natural gas in Europe is still very strong. Yep. Um, some of the agricultural complex is still strong because of supply issues. Those are the real issues here. Um, I think we're already starting to see mitigation within housing prices and stuff like that, where prices, again, destroyed demand. So from a selfish, let's say, crypto perspective, what should we, uh, what should we want from uh, 2022? From what we want and what we get is always two different things. Obviously. Um, the best backdrop to crypto would be further economic weakness um, and the marginal propensity for the balance sheets of the central banks to increase. That would be positive crypto and would certainly extend the cycle further than people imagine. And that's potentially on offer here, um, but, but it's far from a certainty. So now that we, we moved slowly into the crypto land, why have you become interested in, in Bitcoin and how, how did it happen? So my story was a macro story. I had been observing since the mid 2000s, the increase in debt that was going on in the world. By 1997-98, the debt crisis had become a sovereign crisis in Asia. And also a leverage crisis within the West with the banks and long term capital management. And I had been observing that. And that's when I started to realize the deflationary trends that were going on because of this and that debt crisis tend to roll from one place to another until it works itself through. What was surprising was 2000 didn't end up being a, a debt crisis, but it became an aggressive use of interest rates, much like 97 was. And that had stopped a debt crisis forming, but we had the popping of the bubble of the equity market at the time. But again, Debt didn't go away. Speculation moved from the equity market, where it was hard to get leverage, to the property market, where it was easy to get leverage. So leverage exploded again, but this time at household level and at banking level. 2008 comes along, and there was the expected debt crisis that many of us knew was coming. But it was too late to allow it all to burn, the Austrian economic route that people wish but don't actually want. Um, you know, and and that came along, and the answer now was not only cut interest rates to zero, 
but now to stop printing money as well. So, okay, this was a new development. We didn't really know what it meant at the time, but what it did do was increase leverage yet again. But the debt crisis hadn't gone away. The next one was Europe, 2012. I was there. And, you know, I had to buy a generator and buy food, tinned food, in case we lost the banking system. It was that close. Cyprus had lost its banking system. Greece had lost most of its banking system. And I was in Spain at the time. So eventually it passed with Mario Draghi's moment and yet more printing of money. And at that point, I thought, okay, nothing has been resolved yet again. How do we protect ourselves? So I thought, okay, maybe we need to set up a bank that holds deposits in US treasuries and nothing else. No rehypothecation, no lending, no nothing. Basically a receptacle to hold your savings that couldn't be taken away from you. So I went around the world with a few family offices trying to set up that, and it was hard. <laughs> trying to set up a bank is not easy. <laughs> um, and so at that point, a friend of mine tapped me on the shoulder back in 2012 and said, have you looked at Bitcoin? And it was Bitcoin that suddenly it was like, oh, okay, I get this. It's the scarce asset that has properties that are similar to gold. But this blockchain technology means we can record everything. So if the system blows up, you know who owns what. Was it, was it Dan Moorhead? No, this was a guy called Emil Woods, who is very much in the background. He was a partner with Chad Cascarilla, who's founded um, Paxos. Um, Emil's very much in the background, but has been a thought leader in this space and a prolific investor in this space for a very long time. He got, you know, me into it. And then eventually via that, Mark Yusko, Dan Tapiero, all of this. So Emil was our ground zero for all of this. The grandfather. Yeah. So that, that's how I got into it. I then wrote the first macro paper on a valuation for Bitcoin back in 2013, where I said, well, if it is some sort of digital gold, which basically the white paper refers to um, and the work around it at the time, I thought, okay, let's have a look at the above ground supply of gold the known amounts of gold and back Bitcoin into it, which is basically a very rudimentary stock to flow model. Mm -hmm. And I got the valuation of Bitcoin at a million dollars with gold at $1,300. So I'm like, okay, it's trading at $200. This is the best risk reward. And I said, assume I'm the idiot, which I always do. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm 90% wrong. So its valuation is $100,000. It's still the best reward I've ever seen. So... That was my story. How, how was that received, the, the, the valuation? Um, with a lot of interest. It circulated around Silicon Valley. It went wildfire. People aren't supposed to share my global macro investor reports. They're very expensive and very exclusive. It got shared around a lot. Because people could now connect a macro framework to this new asset. And so macro people who were open-minded thought, you know what? There's a risk-reward here. may not happen. But why do you not? And so that became very interesting. So you entered in the in the crypto space by buying Bitcoin in 2013. Correct. All right. So speaking of network effects, I know that you have uh, like now it's a pretty popular theory regarding the internet growth versus the crypto growth uh, in terms of like network effects. And can you elaborate a little on uh, on this? 
Yeah, this story was interesting to me, how I stumbled into this. I don't really know anything about Metcalfe's Law. It was October 2020 when I noticed that people were, when I started saying the chart of Ethereum looks like it's going to outperform Bitcoin, I got immense hatred. I was like, okay, what's this all about? <laughs> and I started to try and understand, okay, how do we price Bitcoin? How do we think about it? And I stumbled across Metcalfe's law. And it made total sense. You know, I just think of this whole space as essentially behavioral economics. You know, what you're doing is you're creating a network of people and incentivizing them to grow the network. So I understood that. And Metcalfe's law was basically that. And then when I figured out it actually applied to Ethereum in exactly the same way, I then realized it applied to everything in this space in exactly the same way, that it was all just network effects. And that gave me something to hang my hat on because I could then understand what was driving the market, how to think about valuation, what was a good project, what was a bad project. It was all about network effects. And I even learned to question what people think of as network effects by just stepping back and saying, okay, what drives the network? It's the number of nodes, the number of connections, you know. Now, what happens if you have a network that's very one-sided, which is the number of, just the number of nodes? So investors in this case, or token holders. Well, Bitcoin's a bit of that. It's quite one-sided still, um, but there are protocols and, I mean, there are applications being built and, you know, Lightning Layer and other stuff. But I looked at Doge, which was this meme coin. I thought, huh, I don't really understand this, but millions of people own it. And my thought process was, well, what happens if somebody builds applications on it? Then you're making the network valuable, more valuable. And lo and behold, Mark Cuban saw that too and said, well, I'll accept it for Dallas Mavs stuff. Yeah, that's a small thing, but it was a meaningful statement that a network can come any way. It can come from amazing applications like Ethereum, or it come from a loyal ownership base. And Elon Musk then started on the whole process. Now, I don't know whether Doge ends up building true network effects or not, but it's interesting. I've kept my mind open to what this all means. And you basically observe that the same network effect, the effects that made, let's say, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter very popular can be replicated or are replicated in the crypto space. Yes, and they have a propensity to move faster, which is why it's outperforming the internet because you've created alignment of incentives. So with Facebook, you and I could use Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and connect with our friends, grow our businesses, do all of those things. But we didn't directly participate in the network unless we own shares. But in a crypto protocol, you participate in the network too. So you're highly incentivized to grow the network or protect the network. And that makes it super fast adopting, which is why it's the fastest adoption of any technology in all recorded human history. And how was this theory received? People didn't want to believe it because they wanted to believe the narrative of Bitcoin or the narrative of Ethereum or the narrative of certain things. So people anchor themselves on particular narratives and they don't like it to be exposed to something somewhat different. The narrative 
everybody invests everybody has a different narrative in the end but the network represents all of that so it actually started to resonate people start to go oh i get it now this is this is what it is and i think i probably made metcalf's law mainstream for people's understanding of what this was about by sheer determination of telling people look this is this is what it is it's not just about the uniqueness of a protocol it's like do other people perceive it to be unique and can they create applications on it? What you just said speaks a lot about the tribalism in, in crypto because basically you came with an objective framework to actually understand what, what happens in front of people's eyes and still the people prefer to believe the narrative that they are uh, already blocked into. So they uh, it's just like multiple blind sides that they ca cannot avoid and they prefer to go even deeper so, in the rabbit hole. But the question is why the tribalism? And it's simple. The tribalism is if you invest in a network, you want to protect it at all costs. So you are now you become both the the you know in your tribe, you're now the productive farm worker and you're the gladiator at the gates to stop the hordes coming. You're tr protecting your tribe against everybody because that is your value. And if you let that go, then it's disappeared entirely. So I get why it happens. And when you throw money into the mix or value into the mix, it becomes incendiary. You know, keep away from my network. You should come to my network because if I do that, I'm increasing the network effects of the network and I get wealthier. Yeah, but I think... If we all do the same and ignore the frameworks, uh, we finish by bringing more people to something that we believe it's, uh, it's a party, but we find out very late that it's a funeral. Yes. And I, right. think, I, I think this is the opposite of actually winning, right? Because we are into this because we want to win, not because we want to be right. Hmm. Yes, but a lot of people then fall back on the argument is they want to be right. They want to prove to the world that, let's say, Bitcoin is the only thing that matters. And they anchor on that and then reject everything based on that one premise, that this is hard money and everything gets built on the back of it. And I... I it is blind. I think they're being blindsided. I attach a probability to that could be the end case in 30, 40 years time. But there's a long way between here and there. Speaking so people of say they stick to their principles now. It's all about the principles of Bitcoin. I get that and I respect that, but they're not my principles. <laughs> how, how do public people, um, how do they manage to, um, let's say, because we've seen, for example, I've seen you at Pump in October saying Bitcoin will go to 200,000 before the end of the year. We've seen Pump before speaking that uh, about the fact that Bitcoin is the only thing that matters and nothing more. And I've seen him investing in a Solana based product like a few days ago. How do public figures change their um how do you stomach when you are not right? And how do you make it? 
how do you make how, how do you make people understand that it's not about being right it's about like giving some directions in which people should look i try and get that across and i never speak in terms of certainties you know so why did i have that projection of bitcoin it wasn't an emotional projection it's like okay bitcoin is following very similar past patterns to 2013 2017 so we have a contextualized understanding we can put it within the logarithmic trend and it would extrapolate being about one standard deviation overbought at around those levels and that would be correct with the trend we also know that it's trading probably below metcalf's law um fair market value right now and we also have observed in the past that the last quarter tends to be quite strong in fact very strong so the balance of probabilities are that you're going to have a good run is that a certainty far from it you know does that make me want to increase my position well, I've been increasing it ongoing anyway. So it didn't change my framework. My framework is not about the end of the year, what price it hits. That's nonsense. That's a thing of podcasts because um, it gets headlines. Why, why do you answer then? Because w when Pomp asked you, I was like so sure that you will not answer. Because I want to show, I want to express the, well, the honest thing of, okay, this is what I think is most likely to happen. <laughs> um, and I think it helps people contextualize certain things. Um, and yes, I, I can be wrong. And I've always said this. Um, because these predictions is, all, is only downside. If you are right, people will say like, obviously, we all know that Q4 is great. So Raul didn't say anything new. If you are wrong, people will say Raul has no clue about what he's talking about. So it's only downside whenever you make predictions. And I was so sure that you 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 you'll say like, well, I cannot make any prediction. Yeah, and I don't shy away from it because I'm in the prediction business because I'm an investor. You know, you've got to have a mental framework. Now, you know, what people need to understand is asking me for a snapshot in time is not my prediction that I'm actually investing on. Because what everybody forgets to do on Twitter is ask, what is your time horizon? Does it matter that it goes to 200,000 by end of year or not? No, because that's not my time horizon. My time horizon is, you know, I'm thinking of this space over the next five years. Where does it go? Are there markers on the way? Yes. So most of the people in crypto, most of the retail is tribal and they don't know their time horizon. What, what are the odds for these people to actually win at this game called crypto? I think that if they understand one thing, two things, the adoption of the technology and therefore, what that implies in market cap of this space, let's say, by the end of the decade, that leads you to a core principle of, much like I did when I took the bet at 200 in Bitcoin, is it's probably a lot higher than here. Now, it's not certain, but the odds are pretty damn high. Unless that network effect stops, which we're not seeing any evidence of, 
then Mind contrary. the best thing to do is just to shut your eyes. <laughs> now, if you are having sleepless nights, then your position is too big. It's as simple as that, really. Speaking of the price, how do you see the market right now? So I think what, so I asked the question, so the question you sh should ask is, why didn't your prediction come true? Okay, so. You, you gave the answer in a different podcast, as in, I, I, I heard for the first time uh, the, the, the theory that the funds will sell their Bitcoin in order to actually mark the profits for the end of the year. So that was why I was amazed because on one hand, you had the the twenty hundred thousand, uh, the the two hundred thousand prediction, and on on the other hand, you had an explanation of why that will not happen. And that's how we should think, right? We right. need to be able to hold two alternative, yep, potential paths in our head at any one time. So, I've also you know noted that the market has a tendency for maximum pain, which I've talked about in other podcasts. And, you know, maximum pain is if we all believe one thing, then the opposite is likely to happen. You know, and I step back and look at it and think, who is the marginal driver of this market right now? It is not retail. Why not? Well, uh, the wallet addresses, new wallet addresses and stuff are below highs now. And I think it's to do with this consumption issue. You've raised prices on retail in terms of fuel, you know, energy, fixed costs. So their marginal ability to invest has gone down as well as to consume. So you've taken marginal money out of the market. So if you've taken them out a bit, and then the institutions are at the year end and they're incentivized differently, again, they're not saying they don't believe in the market. They're saying, I believe in getting paid. And so I want to protect my <laughs> profits. Um, that that I, I get it. It, it created a lopsided market. Um, now, the question is, is, are they done? It looks like they're done because the market has been kind of just chopping around since last week, which was the traditional last week of everybody yeah. you know, squaring their books. Could it have another leg lower, potentially? You know, could that come out of Asia, which is where a lot of the selling has also come from? Again, possibly. But the probability is, is that next year ends up being a strong start just because capital gets put to work. I've seen recently a graph and 99% of uh, all, the, um, all the trading in Bitcoin was coming from uh, wallets uh, and amounts bigger than 100K. So it's obviously not driven by the retail. We can also see that on chain where uh, most of the short-term holders are just picking up and long-term holders are just like, uh, trending uh, uh, are just like keeping the same level of, of Bitcoin they accumulated from May until like, let's say November and uh, I think we've seen uh, we've seen recently as in I think today I've seen a graphs and the leverage is again going crazy high especially on Binance so um, actually only on Binance uh, all the others, even Bybit, where all the DGENs are present, is like close to zero. On Binance, is like building up uh, slowly, not slowly, building up rapidly. So probably another flush will uh, will come. But this leads to my next question. 
why do you think we, we, we see so, so much leverage uh, in, in a market where my feeling is that we are seeing these flashes over and over again. It's like a lesson that people will never, they don't want to understand. What we don't understand is the time horizon of those people. So maybe they're very short term. So then they're making lots of profits and then whoever gets caught when the music stops, they all get washed out. But there's a bunch of people who still make profits from doing it. You know, Asia is more speculative in nature. You know, there's a gambling culture that's pretty strong. So there is more speculation that happens there. They also, you know, in many of those countries coming from a poorer base and the leverage in crypto actually works quite well like options mm -hmm. because you don't get open-ended risk. You get stopped out. Yes, you get the spike. So you get the spike risk, unlike the option where you just lose the premium. But it actually is not a bad way of taking risk for people. I just don't know what their time horizons are. So my guess is a lot of them are pretty short term. Um, so, you know, maybe they're, they're in and out, in and out, in and out, using a lot of leverage to juice their returns. And then, yes, periodically, a bunch of them all get caught uh, and get washed out. I don't know whether that net-net they've made money or not. My guess is they probably have. And mm. if they're net-net making money, then they'll continue to do so. How manipulated do you think the, 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 the Bitcoin market is? You can manipulate a market in the short term. You can't do it in the long term. So I'm not a short-term player. I hear people talking about what the whales are doing and what people are doing in Asia, what some of the you know the bigger trading um, people in Asia are doing. And sure, I mean, humans are incentivized to manipulate markets. But in my time horizon, it doesn't matter. This was a very elegant answer. Be <laughs> because actually you think the market is manipulated, but you don't give a fuck. In the short term, in the short I term, yeah. I think all markets are manipulated in the short term in some way, shape, or form. Crypto just happens to have this twenty-four hour, but not twenty-four hour liquidity, and mm. that's so that creates a opportunity set for people who want to move the market around for specific things. You know, I know this from the derivative market. You know, you would see if there was a option was expiring at one point. People would try and expire it at that point to make it worthless or valuable, whatever it was doing. Same with program trades where you'd buy huge baskets for a pension fund. They would guarantee a price into the close and they would manipulate the price. We've seen it in LIBOR. We've seen it in the foreign exchange fixings. We've seen it in everything. If there's an economic incentive to do it, humans will take it. <laughs> I've heard you saying that 95% of your portfolio is in Ethereum. So you already explained why, and I'm curious to know, how do you see the, the war between the other layer one players? Because obviously um, it's actually not all in Ethereum. It's about 80% Ethereum. Um, there's 95% in crypto. Cause I've also got a position in, in carbon, um, which is the, the only other non-crypto trade I've got, but, um, the other layer ones, it's it's really simple to me. I don't know why everybody gets in a big mess about this. It's really simple. Is okay, so Bitcoin is the least flexible in its current format. So 
if you want flexibility of smart contracts and uh, ease of use, you go to Ethereum. That's great. Now, if you want cheaper fees or faster, you go to a, another layer one, Solana, Terra, Avalanche, etc. And they all have their place in the ecosystem. And that's fine. And it's not, I don't think the market is all about price or speed. It's all about network effects. Those chains are getting network effects. And I think Ethereum's dominance of the alternatives market, the non-Bitcoin market, will fall over time. Because the market's going to broaden out and find different use cases. So I was having an argument on Twitter last night about central decentralization. But it's not decentralized enough for them. Nothing is compared to Bitcoin. But people don't, people will take trade-offs. Everybody does. Life is about a trade-off. And the trade-off is less decentralized equals faster and cheaper. And that equation is what it is. And you make your choice. And that means there will be people adopting some of these ecosystems. Do you see Ethereum flipping uh, the, the, the Bitcoin's market cap? Yeah, for sure. Well, sure. this answer was so, as in, I, I would expect a yes, but it was uh, for sure, it was like more than a yes. Yeah, I mean, for sure, because one is a whole, the internet of value, and the other is a store of value, right? They're not the same things. The value of all of the mobile phone networks in the world is worth a lot more than gold. But nobody compares them. That's stupid. But people compare these things. Now, if in 10 years' time, Bitcoin has smart contracts, has cheap transactions, you know, blah, you know, all of these things that Ethereum offers, then fine, that may change again. You know, I don't think of it necessarily as a permanent flippening. Maybe something else happens. I have a completely open mind. But right now, if you look at the network effects and the speed of growth of the network, Ethereum will outperform. And eventually, it only has to outperform by 2x and it's yeah. done. And, and it's it's larger. Does that mean that Ethereum's one? No, they're two different things. It's ridiculous. But still, we will see them both in CoinGecko and CoinMarketCap. Yeah. One next to, to each other. Yeah. And, you know, and who knows if we look at that in 10 years time. Could be something else. And I have no issue with that. Let's cover a little the, the institutions that want a seat at the table, because if there is someone who know what they think, I think it's you. And uh, I was in Chamonix at the conference to explain the future of Web3 and DeFi to a room packed with millionaires, wealth managers, hedge fund managers. And I was stunned by how much they wanted to learn more about the crypto space. How are your private discussions on this topic with these people, obviously? They all want to learn more about the crypto space. They all understand that this is meaningful. They all understand that they need to learn a new skill set. You can't just go and hire people to do it because people don't want to go and work for institutions. <laughs> so they have to retool people internally. They have to get approvals. They need to figure out what the hell do we do with custody? 
How do we want to think about this space? How do we allocate? So actually the way that most people did it was venture capital. That's why we've seen all the huge amounts, the tens of billions of VC money going into the space because it was easy to do because you could just put some money, give it to somebody else and you didn't have to have a mark to market. So you didn't have to go to your investment committee and say, well, this is a 70 vol asset and it goes up and down a lot. So don't worry, it's had a 50% drawdown. You didn't have to do any of that. So that's why they did that. But the problem is it's pushed up valuations of VC. Um, the next stage I'm seeing, I've even set up a fund of funds which invests in um, in digital asset hedge funds because that space, the secondary market, has had very little primary capital. Um, so that will create enormous amounts of liquidity over time into the marketplace by by you know investing into the hedge fund space. Others are trying to put it, you know, just buy Bitcoin directly um, and Ethereum directly. My guess is they'll end up more of them will look at vehicles as opposed to owning the direct because it just gives them an easier way of getting it through their investment committee, getting it approved from their trustees, etc. You know, just to your point, in Shamoni, we spoke about our DAO and the crypto indexes that we want to create. And all the people were like really interested to understand better exactly how they can position themselves in order to actually be able to invest without having headaches because their clients are coming and asking, how can I get my money into that crypto? Like, I know Mike Novogratz builds things with Bloomberg. Obviously, we have Bitwise, 21 shares, DeFi Pulse Index, and so on and so forth. But I have the feeling, and I, I don't know if it's right or not, that we are missing some puzzle, some puzzle pieces in order to offer proper solutions to institutions. What are the biggest stumbling blocks? It's vehicle choice, and you're right. I think your hypothesis that we need a broad-based index and sub-indices actually is super useful. I think Hunter Horsley and Bitwise are dead right with what they're doing as well. Um, as And we've seen many people benchmark using a bunch of different indices around the world, so there's space for several. So I think that is super useful. I think this fund of funds, they don't really exist. There's like three, they're small. So that's another way people allocate them. And the hedge fund business alone is like a whatever trillion dollar industry, $3 trillion industry. And this industry in crypto is about 6 billion. It's like, okay, that's completely wrong. Um, so those vehicles, obviously the ETF with spot would have been a decent vehicle. I mean, there were some in Europe and Canada and, and elsewhere. I think that helps too. Um, I think understandable wallets that are secure. So I know, you know, somewhere between Fireblocks, Ledger, and a bunch of these people, they will find solutions that are much easier for people to deal with. Um, then the other part is mass consumer applications, which I think is coming. I think it's social tokens um, and NFTs, that combination um you know and embedded with gaming and all of this other stuff so i think the moving parts are all coming everybody's working on them i think people have seen it clearly DeFi has an issue that hasn't yet gone through a full risk cycle we don't know what risk we're taking so what is the blended rate of return through a full cycle 
because let, let's say in a junk bond, the blended rate of return needs to take into account defaults. Yep. Not just the yield you bought it at. And so we don't really know the default risk or whatever the risk is we've got in that, right? Um, so I think we need a bit more of that for maturity for people to start saying, okay, fine, there is meaningful yield here that can last. That's not just a function of a scarcity of available borrow. So you know, staking is interesting for that for that reason. I, th I think in, in DeFi and in crypto more broadly, we are experiencing what Chris Dixon recently called cumorphic products, as in we are taking from an a product from one environment and we translate them into crypto and we are trying hard to feed those products into crypto. For example, uh, I don't know, I've seen recently Mark Yusko investing in Barnbridge, which is a tokenized risk protocol. Uh, that imitate basically similar products from from traditional finance. Is this a good way to generate adoption? I think it's going to happen anyway. My uh, my thought process is everything is going to be tokenized. The interesting process is thinking, what do we not understand now that could be tokenized? Sure, we can put all the securities industry on the blockchain. We can put supply chains on. But what are the other use cases we're not imagining yet? And that was the breakthrough in the internet that came later. And I think NFTs have kind of shown that, right? This was a uniquely crypto thing that's just happened. This whole Web3 thing is actually quite uniquely crypto, this community-driven idea. So let people run with that. When you see what Seed Club is doing, you know, lots of ground-up stuff that Jess is working on there, Really interesting, Jeff Kaufman at Jump, what he's doing with marketing. All from these kind of things, we're going to see really interesting stuff. But it's just, it's still early phase. It's kind of like the internet in 1997, which is where it is in adoption terms. And really, the big breakthrough came in about 2010 when the network business models of Facebook, I mean, Google was around, but really it pivoted to become the data for everything. All of this stuff really happened around 2010. Yeah, basically Google was the internet. So it wasn't about network effects. It was, you had just Google. That's right. Speaking of NFTs, I know that uh, it's a hot subject right now, even for you guys at Real Vision as we speak. Uh, why was it so counterintuitive to see that attaching non-fungible value to digital assets could mean a lot in terms of uh, in terms of adding value in terms of changing business models because we had punks for a few years and it seems like we were looking in a different direction while that thing was there under uh, under our nose you saw it change on twitter it went from bitcoin versus eth and all of this stuff this weird stuff and suddenly it, what people did was found something and these things who knows where the magic starts but where started people start calling each other friend and using gm for good morning i've commented on this and people you know the bitcoin community hated me for it but i'm like what they created was community 
So everyone was so tired of the infighting. And suddenly there was this, we know we're ridiculous. Isn't this fun? Why don't we get together? <laughs> and that was mind-blowing. I We all understood the non-fungible token and where it can be used. You know, insurance contracts or this or that. Fine, we get it. We kind of know that real estate will go there and all sorts of stuff. What we didn't realize is that the Board 8 Yacht Club and crypto punks were going to be the thing, which is really counterintuitive because it's ridiculous JPEGs. But it's not because it what it became was the rallying cry for people understanding what this really meant. That we could be humans in a digital world. And what are humans in the digital world? You know, we self-identify. Everything we do, your background, my background, what we wear, how we wear our, our haircut, the music, music we listen to, the sports, it's all self-identification. And what it gave people was the expression in the digital world that allowed people to group together. That was the weird thing that happened. But that really was the start of Web3 narrative. That people go, right, I get it. Community is everything. Tell me sincerely, do you have a crypto punk? No. Why? Um, so Sergio Silva told me to buy one when they were at 40,000 or 20,000. And I kind of understood, but didn't get it. Meaning, <laughs> meaning, if I don't understand something or I don't feel affiliated with the idea, I just won't get involved. And I wasn't like, I, I think they're worthless. It's like, this is a movement that's happening that I don't understand. Like with music, right? There's types of music you can see that people really like, but it just doesn't work for you. And it just didn't work for me. I, I'm not a big, I don't really like to be a member of a club. I'm a contrarian by nature. I like to be kind of ferociously independent. And to self-identify with that was not something I wanted to do. Um, and I've always found when the world zigs, it's better to zag. So you have no NFT? I have one of the Affen mit Waffe, you know, the um, apes with guns that, because that's actually come from the Real Vision community. The reason they have different colors and feelings is because they're driven by AI scraping the transcripts of Real Vision interviews, figuring out the sentiments yep. and then I kind of think that was smart. And it's based around a community of this knowledge of Real Vision. So I wanted to support that. Um, I have just been given this amazing NFT, which is a basically a stake in a agave plantation in Australia, which gives me the rights to the actual agave cactus and the yield from it that gets bottled personally for me. Um, and it's hyper exclusive because mine is mine and it's only mine and it's all identified on the blockchain. And what they're doing with it, I was speaking to them last night actually, what they're doing is they're testing this to see, okay, can we put exclusive products onto a blockchain and give some exclusive rights around it? But what they're actually looking at is can we destroy the entire supply chain of middlemen and distributors? Hmm. Can a New York distributor just buy the tokens in the agave plants from scratch and then 
if they buy too many, they, it, it should go up in price because you know the, the, the first price versus the end price is different, like with wine, on-premier yeah. versus later. So maybe they get the benefit of the carry of the token, but also they can get rid of inventory super fast, instantaneously. You can pay for it in stable coins, so therefore instant payments and none of the trade financing. Um, and so it's really interesting, really interesting, because at first, like with CryptoPunks and Bored Apes, you look at it and say it's a JPEG. In this case, oh, it's just tequila on a blockchain. What do you care? But when you think about what it's doing, you're like, okay, this is really interesting. This could actually mean something different. Okay, so you look more into the the utility of an M NFT. That means that once we will see, let's say, board A. I also understand, sorry, I also understand the art NFTs. I love that. I'm just not a huge collector. I'll probably collect some NFT art, but right now I just haven't had time to focus on what, what would I want to own and how do I want to display it, you know? Yeah, I, I was saying that I, I have a feeling that you are more focused on utility and that's why you you, you love the idea of uh, of the guys from Australia. And I think it's, the idea itself is great. So is it possible to have Raul with a bored ape once we will see the apes in a Hollywood movie, once we will see the apes in more commercials and so on and so forth, as in when they will transcend the, let's say, just the the the, the funny, funky image of an ape. Or... The answer is, who knows? But again, I don't like being defined in certain ways. Um, so I don't know what that community stands for, whether it aligns with my own interests. I'm not, I'm not just not big into that. Um, so I would probably prefer to be part of a DAO that I believe in with a communal mission than self-identifying. But I'm not sure. That can change. Look, this is, there is no, I'm just not sure. I just haven't seen anything I really wanted to be part of apart from the stuff that we're doing with Real Vision. Not that, you know, I'm trying to say, oh, well, that's particularly valuable or anything. It's just that it's a community that I know and love. Yep. And so that's easy. You know, if David Bowie issued NFTs, I would have been probably involved in that too, because, you know, I'm a huge fan of David Bowie. But, you know, it's, so it just depends what it is. It's funny that whenever I have like uh, an interesting discussion, I have different directions in which I want to go. And the most difficult part is to actually go slowly in, in the right direction from one one topic to another. But you made that so easy because the next idea was to ask you about DAOs. And I know that I've told you when I, I was trying to convince you, which was like easier than I thought to, uh, uh, to come at, at our show. I've told you that we started Stakeboard DAO after I heard you discussing about the four pillars of a Web3 community, which is a leader, a mission, a set of rules, and an economy that binds them all together. So my question is, we are seeing DAOs all over in the last, let's say, two months. Why is this so sexy? It's... It's the idea that you can create structures 
corporate style structures of a coalescing of individuals in a more distributed nature, which is less hierarchical. So you kind of have direct ownership of the network of that idea and you can all participate in the voting structure. I think it's going to work for some things and fail spectacularly for others. Um, it's very early to understand how this all works. I, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, I think sometimes you need a dogged determination from one or two people. Because if you manage by consensus, you end up with blandness. That's what the music industry does, if you think about it is they manage by consensus, by what gets hits on the radio, they create more of that, then they program it. So it becomes almost an AI generating the same thing. And what you do is, is you lose magic. But to use a DAO like a guild to give a specific problem that needs to be solved and allow people the freedom to solve it of a certain curated group of people, okay, that's interesting. Because you can now go and say, I want a certain thing solved. So other thing DAOs are being used for is just getting around regulation. And they're dressing them up as something else. So, and I get that too. I don't have an issue with that. So I think it's very early in the DAO structure. I think there's something really meaningful here. What and how it's going to look in five years time is not clear. I remember that I wanted to ask you something about the funding in this industry. We've seen um, A16Z deploying a ridiculous amount of capital. I think they announced 2.5 billion, something like that. And my first reaction to that was where the heck they will deploy this amount of money? And do they know or do they understand something that I dramatically don't? Because you are seeing the funding for the crypto projects and even the infrastructure projects, like uh, everything which doesn't have a token, but it's useful in the context of the industry. And all the funding is 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, 50 million. And there are like a 20 funds aligned for that specific amount. Where is this capital going? I think if you work under the hypothesis that the space is going up 100x in 10 years, let's say 10, 15 years, whatever the number is, then it almost doesn't matter what price you pay now and how many fail, because some of those are going to be so joke. <laughs> so uh, is there a lot of capital that's going to get blown up here and wasted for sure? But that blown up and wasted capital from 2000 led to Google, Facebook, and everything else. And these guys understand that. So I don't think they're wrong. I think there's not enough projects, but what it's creating is more and more projects, which is interesting. So it's creating this ridiculous pace that this industry suffers from right now that none of us can sleep because there's so much going on. You're looking off the shoulder saying, well, somebody else doing that. Somebody else. Oh my God. It's because there's a lot of capital available and there will be some cycle where a bunch of this stuff blows up but out of that will become the big winners before before ending this i'm curious to know your uh two cents on regulation and 
you've been in, in the space for many years. What's crypto? Is it a commodity, a security, a currency? First, who has to answer this question? As in, who will decide what, what's crypto? And second, who will hold the X in, in the industry to decide what is what? So I think that this is not any of those things. It's a digital asset. And it has functions and features of everything. So we just need to walk away from the past and stop framing things or putting those square pegs in the round holes and just saying, okay, this is a digital asset. It's different. Kind of Singapore's doing that. I think the Middle East will do that. I think that will be the prevalent way. Switzerland's done a pretty good job with that too. And who is going to make that decision is actually the millennial and Gen Z population. The more that they're involved in the space, the more the politicians will have to listen to them. And what this space is trying to do is change the opportunity set for these people. They came out of university and in their 30s with the most early 30s with the most expensive real estate of all time, most expensive equity market, the most expensive bond market, the most expensive credit market. So their forward expected return on their wealth is incredibly low, the lowest of any generation in history. They also are earning less in real terms than any generation in history. They have more debt than any generation in history as a group of 30 year olds. So here is their opportunity. You better damn not well shut them out. This is like the ability for retail to participate in early stage VC, derivative markets, all of the things that have made rich people richer. And it's here for retail. And there's a lot of voters here. And these guys are pretty pissed off in how they've been treated, particularly by the financial world. And I think that is the battle that's coming. It's the battle of the generations. It's the fourth turning. We've seen, we've seen recently some steps in the regulation direction in the US. And do you think we are going in the right direction? Do they understand that we are having a new asset class? Or we will be like blocked in this current framework where we use uh, the 1934 security laws for something that appeared 80 years later in a dramatically different environment. I think what is going on right now is the battle for who has control over this space. If you're a regulator um, with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> so, so the CFTC, the SEC, the OCC, the Fed, I mean, everybody wants a say in this thing, right? Because it's power. What, are the, what is the, why? Well, because they kind of know it's big. <laughs> That's interesting. So Gensler is trying to sound like he's the tough guy to get people on the side saying, Look, I'll take control of this because a lot of these guys are boomers and they don't understand what this is all about. So he's saying, don't worry about it. I, I've got this. So he he's trying to get power himself. But you know, I think the US is learning about the power of the number of crypto holders. 
and how passionate they are about the space and how much money they have. And so I think there's a game changer to come from this. I think they will, as I said, they'll be forced to understand that this is not a 1934 securities law. What does the 1934 securities law actually do? It actually forces you to use an intermediary because you're not smart enough to go directly. That's basically the whole thing. Yep. You're not smart enough to take risk. And unless you've got a million dollars, then take all the risk you want. You can go to a casino, you can buy a gun, but you can't invest in a startup. No, no, no. Why? Because it forces people into intermediaries, which is why the banks and the asset managers don't want change. But the behavior that is observable is if the, if you see a group of people who fear change and change is coming, there will be others who will drive it. Hmm. So disruption, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. So my guess is there's 20 asset management firms around the world thinking, fuck it, how do we change everything? And that's happening everywhere. The music industry, the film industry, the media business, the, uh, the insurance industry, the banking industry, everything there's somebody thinking fuck it let's change it all this is a great way to end this one raul thank you very much it was fun and i'm sure it's useful thanks a lot good luck in everything you do yeah really enjoyed it thanks so much and have a great christmas and new year thank you very much